This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to season one of The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Today on Race to Value, we have Tyler Wilson, Vice President, Population Health and Clinical Quality for Austin Regional Clinic. For our listeners out there that may not know Austin Regional Clinic, they're a multi-specialty medical group committed to providing comprehensive healthcare services throughout Central Texas. They were founded in 1980. They currently have 260,000 members attributed to their various value-based contracts. They're responsible for the care of 540,000 members in the Austin area. Having been around for 40 years, they've done a lot of great work. Daniel, I, I just am really impressed with our conversation and being an Austinite. I enjoy seeing what IERC is doing because I really think they're setting the standard for value-based healthcare in Austin. Yeah, Eric, they're in your backyard. And so you obviously know these guys really well. And I have to say, I'm impressed with Tyler. He's been there for six months and and he knows the organization well and the priorities and their strategies. And I love how we start this conversation with him and we learned that ARC started out as an HMO and they did that for 20 years. And then they had to shift from that and go into fee-for-service and and they're making, I'm going to call it a recovery, you know, <laughs> recovering from their fee-for-service time and, and have come back to where their heart is, which is delivering value-based care. For those organizations looking to win the race to value, they can certainly learn a lot from Tyler Wilson. So let's hand it over to Tyler as he joins us on this week's podcast. Tyler, thanks for joining us today on the Race to Value podcast. Thanks for the opportunity, guys. I'm glad to be here. Well, Tyler, as we begin our conversation today, I thought we could discuss Austin Regional Clinic's journey in value-based care and how that journey has been enabled by various tipping points along the way. So many of our listeners out there are leading similar shifts in their respective organizations. In effect, they're moving away from fee-for-service and moving towards a more value-based, patient-centered model of care delivery. And that model of care delivery is enabled by population-based payment. 
One of the questions that we're getting a lot from our ACLC members is how much of our business needs to move to risk for us to have this tipping point for value reached? I mean, I had this conversation with one health system CFO and he told me that the financial tipping point in their organization was around 70%. So if 70% of their business was at risk, then the economic model of the system was really aligned towards managing total cost of care. And as a point of comparison, there was an article that Brent James wrote about in the Harvard Business Review called The Case for Capitation. And he said the tipping point was more like 30%, where if you had at least 30% of your group's total payments that came through capitation, then the mathematical and empirical models show that operational efforts focused on waste elimination will actually lead to improved financial performance. So all that said, I'm thinking about that. And I'm also thinking back to when I heard Dr. Anas Dagestani, your CEO and president at, at ARC, he talked about this tipping point concept. Uh, and I think he used the term the payment straddle where the fee-for-service curve and the value curves intersect, and you have to really minimize the time in the straddle. Otherwise, you're going to go out of business. I really wanted to explore this with you, Tyler, today, this idea of tipping points, especially in relation to ARC's value journey. For our listeners that don't know Austin Regional Clinic well, it has a really interesting history. It started off as a fully capitated commercial HMO back in 1980. And it spent its first two decades focused on delivery of high quality capitated care. And then multiple environmental factors really necessitated that there needed to be a retreat away from capitation. And ARC really didn't return to value-based care until about 2011 when the passage of the ACA reignited enthusiasm at a national level for the ACO model. And then from about 2011 to 2018, ARC really made some great strides, made incremental progress towards value. And then a huge tipping point came in 2019 when ARC began a fully delegated Medicare Advantage program, thus returning to its initial business model in 1980. So Tyler, can you walk us through ARC's journey in health value over the years? How has the organization been positioning itself and being a nationally recognized example of a large medical group leading in value-based care? And also in that ARC provides care for 540,000 residents in Central Texas, and over half of those are in the population health contracts that you manage. Can you provide us some perspective on whether or not ARC has truly reached that all-important tipping point when it comes to being predominantly a value-based care-focused healthcare organization? Absolutely. Well, this is such a good question. You know, I always have the quintessential thought in my mind when we had this conversation of it's no longer the person that has maybe a slight angle with two feet in both canoes, but now it's like fully doing the splits in one direction. So, I mean, at some point when one canoe starts going one direction to a, a significant enough angle, you have to move to the other canoe or you're going to fall in. I mean, I completely agree with Dr. Dagestani in that respect. My view of the history of Austin Regional Clinic's narrative in their transition to value-based care is that it's a bit of back to the future. You know, I've only been with the organization for about six months, but in listening to some of the storytellers, the historians, like Dr. Norman Chenman, who was one of the founders of, of Austin Regional Clinic and is still the CEO of Covenant Management Systems, which is ARC's co-owned management services organization, that Dr. Chenman would say it's a bit of back to the future. Looking at the history for ARC is, is really thinking about, wow, we've, we've been there. We've been there to a, a higher degree, actually, when they had about 80,000 commercially 
insured fully capitated and delegated lives with Prucare, which was a local HMO here in Central Texas back in 1980. And so what's interesting is, is we've gone from capitation to fee-for-service. That really did necessitate moving a lot of those value-based functions that were necessary in capitation out of the organization. And now we've made those investments again. So just to give you a sense of you know, where we are today on the heels of, of what has now been you know, almost a decade-long journey in rebuilding that infrastructure. We have about 70 FTEs in our population health division split across several different verticals. We do have patient outreach. We have a analytics engine and shop that helps us combine claims and clinical data, risk stratify and produce reports, those types of business intelligence functions for our population health division. We also have an embedded nurse navigation function that is the nucleus of our care model alongside a centralized transitions of care program and an ED outreach program alongside other post-acute efforts like home health navigation. So those are essentially the functions for the population health division. And I mentioned that because over time, since 2011, we've seen the environment shift from upside-only vehicles that were largely voluntary into vehicles that are more diversified. So not only seeing a higher prevalence of value-based care type contracts, and we're seeing the their level of risk dial, so to speak, getting turned up back towards where we came from in, in 1980, where we were at full and delegated risk. So specifically in Medicare, commercial, and in the exchange side, and even on the Medicaid side, actually, we're seeing more transition to downside risk across all those different contracts over time in the last decade. And so in the sense that the environment is the most compelling tipping point for us to decide when to switch into which canoe. You know, I think very much now is the time where we're assessing what is the prevalence of contracts in value that predominates, say, all of our scarce resource allocation and strategic planning efforts. But we also have to ask the question, not only is there a scale argument of we have this much value-based care lives, but then the question becomes how much revenue is directly attributable to value-based contracts. For us today, that would be things like pay for performance bonuses for quality performance, things like care coordination fees, and things like shared savings bonuses. So it's been interesting, too, looking back on the journey and how we've responded responded to the environment, especially as a, an independent multi-specialty medical group, having to think about capital constraints and the most efficient way to source capital and investments to be able to build infrastructure and to be able to participate in these kinds of, of programs. Over time, in Medicare Advantage, we formed a joint venture with a company called Agilon, which is a private equity-backed company that allows us to take fully delegated capitated risk on our Medicare Advantage portfolio. It's just an example of how a multi-specialty medical group like ARC has had to really think outside the box about how we flip the switch and what the opportunities are to participate. And I think that's an example of using a very high value partner in the form of Agilon to be able to access the capital, to be able to access the risk, and then to be able to monetize it into some real opportunity in the near term when otherwise perhaps that would have had to have been a, a much more drawn out type of investment in the future. So those are the types of things going on in our heads right now. You know, so we're looking at the landscape again and trying to look out, say, three to five years into the strategic planning horizon for our organization and the pop health division and asking questions. Where are we in terms of the scope and scale and what's the degree of risk that we anticipate across all lines of business in our value-based care portfolio? How does that compare to fee-for-service? Where's our risk going and how do we need to prepare? 
And I think the answer is this is still an extremely important strategic focus for us at this point in time. We do think that the level of involuntary risk will go up, that the level of overall risk will continue to go up. And that really will necessitate challenging ourselves about where do we make strategic investments in terms of our care model? How do we think in a more disciplined way about things that might be missing, for example, like, for example, a pharmacy intervention, things like behavioral health interventions, which I know are a challenge for all of us, things like expanding our home-based care management platform that we use for our Medicare Advantage and deploying that into other lines of business. I think all of those types of things are at the top of our mind. The one thing I would say is that looking back on the recent pandemic and how that was an utter sea change for all of us in a fee-for-service, a fee-for-value hospital and multi-specialty medical group like ARC, one of the interesting things in retrospect was that we always viewed the investments made in infrastructure. Like I said, the 70 FDEs in our population health division are 260,000 value-based care lives that we built that infrastructure to accommodate. We always viewed that as being somewhat risky, and then the downside risk associated with value-based contracts as being the riskiest part of our portfolio. And I think what COVID taught us was our fee-for-service revenue ended up being the most risky revenue because events that lead to economic turmoil that might change the amount of utilization we have, the extent to which we can remove utilization from the overall revenue picture, the better we would have been long-term. The other thing that we look back in hindsight and say is that the shared savings revenue that came in, even in upside only contracts, you know, that were really viewed as sort of a bonus. These became critical lifelines for an organization like ARC. These became very material aspects of our revenue picture in a time when our fee-for-service revenue went down pretty substantially. So I offer those as sort of elements that we're thinking about as we're scanning the environment now, again, in summary, We think it's going to become more involuntary, that risk will become higher over time in all lines of business, and that the extent to which we can fix our revenue in the future, that could actually end up protecting us from some of these unforeseen economic and and financial events. Tyler, you've highlighted a number of things that I think are going to be really important to our members and, and our listeners as they're learning from your experiences. And I want to point out, you're in Austin, you mentioned you've been there for a few months, and And I'm a little bit jealous. I think it's a a great place I visited and and Eric's from Austin and he tells me all these cool things about it. And it's really becoming an emerging uh, national innovation hub, you know, with technology giants like Amazon, Dell, IBM, Intel and Oracle. They all have a major presence in the city. Recently, I read that Apple's building a $1 billion campus there. Tesla just announced that it has a new factory in Austin. So thinking about the innovation hub, it really bodes well for advancements in healthcare. And Austin Regional Clinic's right in the middle of this. You're well positioned to be in the driver's seat for care delivery transformation to improve population health. And you've had your share of innovation over the past few years as well. Your EMD access, your own telehealth service. You were quickly able to convert to virtual patient visits in COVID and offer drive-up testing. I know you've got a new high-acuity triage line, which has been able to help redirect over 75% of triage calls that might have been referred to the ER historically. You're using Apple Watches for recording data during patient visits, and you've got patient portal optimization and predictive analytics. Let me ask you to speak to that 
that culture of innovation that supports the implementation of these new programs, technologies, your responsiveness to what you've been talking about already. And as kind of a newcomer to Austin from North Carolina, what's your view of the city as well? How is it positioned to be a national force in innovation? Great question. I think that to some degree, innovation, so much of an organization's capacity for innovation comes from what it believes. How much does it tolerate failure? Because failure is a signal of the organization's willingness and ability to invest in new novel concepts and knowing that, that that's a part of that culture and the, the license it gives to its operators, to its leadership, and to its rank and file to, to try new things that they know will benefit them in furtherance of their mission. It has been super cool for me to come to Austin because, like you said, this is a hub of innovation nationally and in Texas. This is not a normal place. You know, the reason I say that is in this market, the fringe benefits are key. There is so much highly paid, talented clientele here in this market that when you think about even just something as simple as PPO network design or comparing that to other markets where, for example, narrow networks may have taken hold for the employer community a long time ago. When you talk to brokers in this market and you think about the designing of networks here in Austin, the, the value of the fringe benefit is hugely influential to keeping employees in a company because those, those employees have so many other options. You know, the other data point I think about has been, you know, how to extrapolate patient experience type data that we receive from third parties, whether it's a survey from a payer contract or another source, and to try and sift that down into meaningful data. ARC over time has invested in a solution to that question. So they actually worked with a company here locally and have now switched to a company called Binary Fountain. And the long and short of it is they realized that, you know, these sampling methodologies from the payers just weren't adequate to be able to address the question, nor was it a large enough sample, it wasn't timely enough, and we weren't able to incorporate that data and really slice and dice it ourselves to give our consumers even a clear picture. So they partnered with this company and almost every single one of our patients that leaves one of our appointments now receives a text message within an hour of their visit, and they fill out a five-question patient experience survey with this company, including a, a net promoter score at the end, then they can leave comments. Now we have a huge sample of several hundred thousand completed surveys in a given year, which allows us to transparently provide that information in a conglomerated way on our website to our consumers who are making important shopping decisions based on that type of data. And to me represents just a pinnacle of innovation. You know, I think an organization like ARC and in a market like Austin, it almost is one of those innovate or die type markets. So in terms of responding to what our competitors are doing, which are some, some very innovative things themselves. So this is not a nice to have, it's more of a, a necessity to meet the demands of the, the very unique consumer needs here in Austin. Well, Tyler, like you, I'm hopeful that there will be a groundspring of innovation that could have a transformative effect on population health and Despite Austin ranking as one of the healthiest cities in America, I think Wallet Hub had us listed as number 11, and Austin is also very well educated in terms of its citizens. I, I think about Texas, and Texas is in really bad shape overall. I mean, the four worst areas of population health performance are the 
uninsured rate, obesity, access to mental health services, and access to primary care. Some of the takeaways I was reading on that just recently, Texas leads the country in the highest rate of uninsured. I mean, nearly one in three of Texans under 65 lack health insurance. It's about 5 million people. And then here in Texas, I think we're number 10 in the country when it comes to obesity rates in the United States. And we're uh, 51 of all 50 states in the District of Columbia when it comes to access to mental health care. And Texas has a fast-growing and aging population, yet we rank 47th in the nation for primary care access. There's a lot to consider there, and I know ARC is thinking about all of these things and more. So I wanted to talk about access with you for a minute. Given that three of the four worst population health indicators in Texas are related to access to care, can you speak to what ARC is doing to improve access to both primary care and mental health services for the population it serves? Also, can you share any outcomes on how expanded access has led to things like reduction in ED visits or fewer hospital readmissions? And then lastly, are there any lessons or pearls of wisdom that you can share with our listeners that are really struggling with these access issues in other parts of Texas? Eric, thanks for the question. I think it's a great one. So it has been really eye-opening and, and awe-inspiring for me, frankly, to have joined ARC and seen how they've built the bedrock of their value proposition, which has been a long-standing and unwavering investment in access. So much of what ARC has done has been in the spirit of the patient-centered medical home model, things that are cut across all lines of business that we can invest in that will lead to a better value proposition for our customers, to health plan members and to our, our patients. So I think that's been really cool to see that bedrock value proposition applies no matter if you're attributed or not in a value-based contract. So just to highlight a few of those different things, one has been a commitment to expanded hours. So the idea that across multiple different clinics that we call our after-hours clinics, there's an opportunity for that mom that just got off work at 5 p.m. to go to one of several different convenient clinics across the Austin Metro when most doctor's offices with traditional hours would have shut their doors. And to do that until, you know, in some cases, the late evening is really compelling. And to do that 24-7, 365, nights, weekends, and holidays I think is a, a really important piece that if we hadn't done that, if ARC hadn't done that, those patients in a lot of instances would be going to the emergency room for things that are unnecessary. So I think that's number one, is just having that expanded value proposition. The second, in, in that same vein, in my view, is the ability to have same-day access. So that's always been one of those PCMH-style bedrock of your practice-type standards was ensuring that patients have the ability to easily schedule an appointment with every provider within a reasonable time frame. And I know for ARC, they certainly shoot to have almost every provider, especially on the primary care side, available on the same day. But, you know, the other thing that's been really compelling to me to, to see is the patient's ability to make those appointments. When patients can log onto their patient portal, when they can log on to the ARC website, and they can see each provider's unique scheduling availability and make a same day appointment or one that fits their schedule during weekday hours or after hours. I mean, it's, it's one of those, like, this is not rocket science type takeaways, but is one of those things that truly is unique um, among independent medical groups. So much about the character of a person in my view or an organization in this case comes out during a, a real crisis. 
And COVID was, of course, that for every healthcare organization across the country, including ARC. Early on, if you'll recall, in let's call it the second week of March through the end of April, when demand for primary care services, surgical subspecialty, and pediatrics, as volumes are going down, 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 we even were, at that point in time, canceling things like preventative wellness-type activities. As we were doing that, we had to, to make a decision very early do we or don't we close certain clinics? Do we leave certain ones open? So it was really encouraging to me that ARC's leadership, especially on the physician side during the crisis said, you know what? The most important thing to us during a crisis is to continue to be who we are and do the right thing. And it was really powerful to see them say, we're gonna continue to maintain our value proposition. We're not changing any of our hours. We're not closing any of our clinics. And I believe that once the economics turn around, you know, post-pandemic, that ARC will be better off for having maintained that value proposition because new patients did increase during that time frame where we were the only accessible clinic during that time. And so we did experience a high growth of new patients as we chose to maintain that value proposition. So, you know, again, to me thinking about what does that consumer get at ARC? whether they're attributed or not, it's always been access. And access is, is just so vitally important. So the other thing you mentioned is our investment in EMD access. I think we can't tell the COVID story, obviously, without telling the story of how we navigated the virtual platform transition. So ARC had made a, an innovative investment in EMD access several years ago. This was intended to be an ARC agnostic platform in the sense that any patient that was trying to interact with an ARC provider during the pandemic was largely doing so via the patient portal, although it is staffed 24 seven by ARC primary care and pediatricians, it can treat non-ARC patients, especially during those, those crazy months of March, April, May, where our value-based percent of our business from a visit perspective went up to as high as 70% of our total. And that was what reinforced that value proposition, especially during a time when patients were trying to navigate how best to access their provider that overall bedrock value proposition, which to me is the bedrock of all of our population health efforts, is just the PCMH style of how do we treat every patient that comes through the door, no matter their insurance, no matter their attribution to a value-based contract, what are those things that are cross-cutting that represent who we are and what we believe in? From day one, that has been access for ARC. So then what are the additional elements that you know we layer on for population health? And that's all sort of those additional sweetener value-based care type investments where we have proactive outreach for gap in care closure, where we have things like embedded nurse navigation, transitional care, centralized type phone calls, ED navigation, home health navigation, in-home care management. It's all those additional layers that do lead to better outcomes and lower costs, but certainly do layer on top of that bedrock value proposition that are just the additional studs on the foundation of the house that build our patient-centered medical home. Tyler, I want to dive into some of these additional layers you're talking about that you've added onto the bedrock. And you mentioned your quality measures and your performance and you know improving outcomes. And I just want to highlight a couple of those to have this conversation. So you've got an 80% screening rate for depression and fall risk, which when you think back to two years ago, you were at 38%, so a huge increase there. You've got A1C control rates that are at an all-time high now. 
you've done significant improvement in a number of areas, colorectal screenings, vaccination rates, lipid management. So as I understand, you've talked about population health program investments, significant time and capital. It kind of sounds like there's three main areas where these investments and these efforts are going and and I think you can help us understand this a little further. And those three areas would be automation, predictive analytics, and this outreach that you've been talking about. So if we talk about the automation in your quality program, ARC previously struggled with submitting supplemental data files to payers, couldn't effectively account for exclusions in accurate number of patients being computed for a denominator. Look back periods were the same irrespective of the measures, you had erroneous population counts. For some measures, the age eligibility criteria was also inaccurate. Using the colorectal screening example, you were able to uncover patients who required extra attention to get them to act. And ARC was able to offer more options for patients to get screened, including a ColoGuard at-home screening tool. And then ARC's Outreach efforts have been incredible. The more than 17,000 appointments for patients with identified care gaps were scheduled. 7,000 care gaps were closed for patients with cervical, breast, and colon cancer and diabetic measures. So thinking of those three things, the automation, predictive analytics, and outreach, can you speak to your success for your population health program, how it was able to achieve such improvements? And how were these three elements a part of improving those results over time? Absolutely. Thanks, Daniel. And I think to me applies in any number of contexts related to how we define success in pop health from ARC's perspective. So, you know, it could be quality related to the examples you mentioned. It could be related to total cost of care type of outcomes, for example, which ARC has also experienced. It could be patient experience, for example, if we want to include that in the quality bucket or in something like burden of illness and risk adjustment. So when I think about ARC's success in quality, gap in care closure, and some of the things that you've mentioned on that side of, of the house, a lot of it comes down to infrastructure and discipline from the way we interact with the health plans to how we execute. So let me just use an example. You know, the team does a really nice job here of ensuring that we receive timely, consistent, and accurate membership files from the payers. But I think for a seasoned and mature population health organization like ARC, it, it is a really critical function. Every month, receive membership files, you know, eligibility files from the payers. We ingest those. We ensure that they're accurate. And we use those to do things like audit, care coordination fees, ensure those are accurate. We then trend membership and identify overall trends by line of business, by product, to see how things are looking in terms of membership growth or lack thereof. And then most importantly, we use that as one of the drivers to identify patients who, for example, are eligible in a value-based contract for a denominator for a specific quality measure, and then would be indicated for a specific outreach in the numerator. And then on the analytics side of our shop, our team then has gone through the exercise of looking at all the value-based contracts that ARC has, which are over all lines of business. And so what the analytics team is doing then is helping us look at all the quality measures across all those contracts and trying to come up with the lowest common denominator set. So what they've done is gone through a pretty rigorous exercise to say, what's a universal standard out there for all these different contracts and lines of business? And how could we pick 15 to 20 measures, even though there are north of 70 or 80, that we could narrow those down to say, these are the ones we're gonna measure. 
So we chose 15 or 20 measures that we think best represented the different populations by segment across all those value-based contracts for those 260,000 lives. This lets us at a macro point of view for the whole organization, and by the way, for all ARC patients, not just those who are attributed, it allows us to look at individuals who are indicated for a denominator, are indicated for a numerator and have not received that thing, and then to have very disciplined outreach and other tactics in place to be able to affect our success. I think that the membership and analytics side really are super important to have that dashboard to be able to say, okay, here are the opportunities relative to where we want to be. Okay, so that's the analytics side. And then we have the ability to drill down on that for each individual population, line of business, product, clinic, NPI, and we then identify opportunities. And so we say, okay, we're not where we want to be with colorectal cancer screening. We look at the data trends. We also are always out visiting with our other peer organizations to try and determine what tactics they have in place. And we sit down as a multidisciplinary team and we then try and determine, okay, what are the tactics we want to put in place and then measure our success relative to that quality measure to see if we can really move towards a goal line. And any number of things could apply simultaneously as we've learned. So for us, that might be an automated iLearn type platform for uh, required provider education related to HPV screening is one we're doing right now, just as an example. You know, the next is we're doing a very disciplined letter campaign for patients indicated for colorectal cancer screening, a text campaign for those who are called and then are unable to reach as a follow-up. And then, for example, it may be a, an additional type of outreach to find patients who would be better selected for, say, Cologuard, as you mentioned, or a Fobbit kit for those who opt out of a colonoscopy. So I think all of those different layers are, are really important, and it really just comes down to, for us to the blocking and tackling and discipline of having an action plan, tracking that over time, and then reassessing tactics and layering on more. And again, giving yourself that innovative spirit to try things, challenge yourself, talk to your peers, find out what's working and what's not, and give yourself the license to fail. Switching gears for a second to something you mentioned about the oncoming tide of automation. One area we see automation coming into focus has been with burden of illness. So when we think about, about burden of illness, honing in for a second into our Medicare Advantage population, where again, we have the partnership with Agilon, it's a joint venture where we have full risk for about 22,000 Medicare Advantage lives across three different payers here in Austin currently. We have an entire established process for how we execute on burden of illness prior to an encounter, during an encounter, immediately post-encounter, and then retrospective to an encounter. Giving you some examples, so we started with a physician medical record review side where we have physician medical record reviewers who actually take a look at each patient's chart that is scheduled for a Medicare wellness visit or is just attributed to one of our Medicare Advantage contracts and review the patient's chart. They look for both those codes that need to be recaptured and then those codes that were coded last year and could be coded this year, so recurring codes or suspect codes that are indicated from information in the patient's chart and we think could be coded this year but weren't coded last year. That goes onto a manual form that's provided to the provider for any encounter at the point of care. So what's interesting is thinking about automation, we've been able to do very recently for the Medicare Advantage population has been using what's called a best practice alert, which is essentially you think of it as a pop-up where when a patient is in front of the provider for an encounter, in this case for a Medicare wellness visit encounter, 
the provider actually gets a pop-up that helps the provider very quickly assess codes that need to be readdressed or things that are suspect, and they can very quickly add those to the problem list and to their active diagnoses. And I think most exciting for what we're looking to implement here in the near term has been on the retrospective claims review side. So now the note is closed, the, the encounter is closed, it's been sent to the, the payer and adjudicated and paid. And now there's a process where we're looking at the algorithms that help us automate processes to do the same as what we did on the front side, but now to do it on the back side, where we can run a, a machine learning natural language processing algorithm that learns its way into determining from the actual medical record what other diagnoses could have been submitted. And it then recommends those to coders on the backside who then submit those diagnoses in retrospect to the payer so that the payer and then subsequently ARC can reap the benefits of higher revenue. And finally, you mentioned the predictive analytics side. And you know this has always been, to me, the unicorn of our industry where everyone's heard of one but never seen one. In my case, I've worked with a whole host of different population health management systems where we've got a system that's trying to incorporate claims and clinical data. It's trying to marry those data sources. In some cases, like a clinically integrated network, it's trying to marry those not just for one organization, but for multiple organizations, multiple different electronic medical records, predictive analytics as asking which patients are most likely to progress in their disease state or are most likely to have a hospital admission in the next 12 months not just based on prior utilization history, but also based on their diagnosis or their health history or their credit history, for example, using other non-clinical inputs. I think that a lot of the companies have always said they've had the ability to do this type of thing. I've not seen it yet. I think this is one of the things we're looking for in the next phase of our analytics team, the ability to move beyond risk adjustment and into that predictive world. And I have to be honest, we're not there yet, but as we continue to keep our ear to the ground and with the vendor community, I know there are a lot of companies out there that are starting to see some really good results. And once we get there, I think that will supercharge the efficacy and the return on investment for all of our interventions. Well, I'd like to explore more with you, Tyler, the Medicare Advantage portion of your pop health portfolio. You referenced earlier that you had about 22,000 lives that are associated with global risk contracts in the Medicare Advantage space. And you referenced your partnership with Agilon. For our listeners out there, Agilon Health is a national leader in providing technology process standardization and capital for high-performing physician organizations looking to succeed in global risk, capitation models, and Medicare Advantage. So in 2018, ARC entered into this partnership. You embarked on this unique model of care. You became capitalized. You had this partner now that was part of your population health strategy, and you reaffirmed your commitment to becoming a leader in fully delegated Medicare Advantage risk. So I just wanted to check in with you. It's been a while since you've entered into this arrangement. How has ARC's MA strategy gone? You know, if we look at the national landscape, currently one third of all Medicare beneficiaries, about 22 million people are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And the CBO projects that the share of beneficiaries enrolled in MA plans will rise to about 47 to 50% or so by 2029. And the share of Medicare beneficiaries and MA plans across the U.S., it really ranges from anywhere between 1% to 40%, depending on where you are. Austin, as I understand, has MA penetration around 30%. 
And currently the ARC population health portfolio, it's about 6% Medicare Advantage. So Tyler, can you provide our listeners with an understanding of how Medicare Advantage has become more prominent in your population health contract portfolio? And do you have any specific enrollment milestones in the short term, especially with the connected senior care advantage product that you're now offering in partnership with premier family physicians and in the long term do you see the austin market following the same growth trajectory as the rest of the country with regard to medicare advantage enrollment absolutely thanks eric as you said in 2018 you know the group recognized all the same data points you just mentioned where we knew that medicare advantage was becoming significantly more prevalent it's growing by a substantial amount here in the Austin metro area. Um, it had been a fairly lucrative value-based contract for ARC in the past. It almost comes full circle to, to one of your first questions about what's the tipping point. And this was an opportunity recognizing that this can be a lucrative line of business. And if done right, we can make strategic investments with a very meaningful and motivated partner who allows us to take more risk than we would have otherwise been able to take, gives us the access to capital that we otherwise would not be able to invest. And so to supercharge sort of the speed at which we move towards where we know things are going, but to move there in the near term, where you're acknowledging you're gonna be devoting a disproportionately large amount of organizational focus, resources and momentum, and that you're going to do that even though it represents a disproportionately small amount of your total value-based and fee-for-service portfolio, but you're doing that because it represents a unique opportunity, not only from a financial return perspective, but it also created for us the opportunity to incubate the types of infrastructure that we would need to perform in full risk, and it gave us the license to fail, to succeed or fail, and test new concepts, and to do so with a quicker timeline than we otherwise would. So thinking back on where we've been, you know, we are starting to see a, a lot of success. We think this is a, a line of business that is gonna continue to be very important as an incubator for how we build infrastructure in the future and what our care model looks like under risk, but also just from a pure financial perspective because in the Medicare Advantage business line, we can be very successful there. Whereas comparing that to a, say a commercial upside only, type shared savings arrangement, the juice may not be worth the squeeze in terms of the investments made and whether they reap the same return on investment because the risk is not as high. It truly has been a very meaningful investment and one that we place it as, as a very high strategic priority. The other thing I'll mention again, going back to the pandemic, is that an external source of capital, a partner to lean on in terms of not only financially, but strategically and operationally during the pandemic was absolutely invaluable to ARC and to our Medicare Advantage patients who received a lot more resources than they might have otherwise, given the financial backing that we have in that partnership. The other thing I think you asked, Eric, is about you know the future of Medicare Advantage and where do you see that going in a unique market, what that means for their preferences and how their shopping behavior is affected in a market like Austin. I have to believe that although choice is king, I have to believe that the Medicare beneficiary and the commercial beneficiary in this market will become more price sensitive. So although a market like Austin can tend to be somewhat recession proof, I still think that employers across all sectors and individual consumers, including those over age 65, are going to be facing some challenges in terms of the demand for their services or their individual disposable income. 
and their ability to pay for premiums. So all of a sudden, you know, at annual enrollment, making a choice about the breadth of the network and the premium they pay and their out-of-pocket max and the pharmacy they use, I think all of a sudden they're willing to make a trade-off in this environment and in this economy where they may choose to try for the first time moving from traditional Medicare into a Medicare Advantage plan that offers less choice, but does have a demonstrably lower premium. I think that patients are going to be making those cost-sensitive decisions, and they're going to be willing to make the trade-off in terms of network breadth for a lower premium, maybe a slightly higher out-of-pocket max. And I think what they'll find is that all of a sudden they're receiving preventative services. They're getting phone calls for you know, that colonoscopy they've been putting off or that mammogram, or they are receiving calls to consistently receive their annual wellness visit activity. And they'll understand the nature of, for the first time, the coordinated care model that Medicare Advantage represents. So, you know, for that and other reasons, I, I really am very bullish on its growth. Tyler, I want to connect a couple of things that we've been talking about. As you've been talking about your forecast of what is going to happen with Medicare Advantage nationally and in Texas, and it's going to become increasingly important to accurately reflect the bird of illness, as we've talked about, to the, the highest level of specificity so that you can get the appropriate resource allocations, both in terms of care management interventions and, and premium dollars flowing through the plan that support the population health needs. And recently in healthcare media, ARC founder, Dr. Norman Chenven, he's been pretty vocal about some of the challenges in the current pandemic with regard to documenting underlying conditions. And, you know, you've talked about the HCC coding. And, but CMS has decided not to allow audio-only visits, such as phone calls, for determining risk adjustment for patients in Medicare Advantage. CMS has also recently added audio plus video telehealth as a way for physicians to document underlying conditions. But Dr. Chenven and other providers across the country would really like to see audio-only visits included because much of the necessary risk adjustment, as you talked about, it can be not only collected with a phone call, but it can be fairly well assumed and planned for with AI. And how's Agilon been able to support this important population health program for your MA patients with technology, capital, and staffing, and with some of the challenges associated with the COVID-19 pandemic that I mentioned with the face-to-face -face encounters and limitations of RAF capture with telehealth and limitations of the 1135 waiver. How has ARC adjusted its risk adjustment program to ensure the coding documentation you need to capture? A great question, Daniel. And around March, as the pandemic took full sway, we started this sort of three-dimensional grid, if you want to think of it that way, where you're by payer on the, say, y-axis. And then, you know, the x-axis are the things like payment parity for audio, payment parity for video, payment parity for audio visual, just from a fee-for-service basis. And then the same question for the same payers related to our ability to transmit risk adjustment. And it seemed like for several months there, the answers to all those questions were vague or they were changing on a daily basis or we were receiving contradictory information from different payers within different lines of business. And honestly, for our payer partners, I completely understand because they were trying to navigate a very complex subject. We were dealing with things like the Medicare 1135 waiver where you know, we're trying to determine what the timeframe was around their stance on each of those issues for payment parity or for risk adjustment submission. So certainly understand how challenging this was for our payer partners as well. 
But coming up with that grid finally, you're able to say, okay, for Medicare Advantage, as an example, here are the three payers we operate with. And for those payers, you know, how do they treat payment parity? Well, it turns out that they're going to pay the same for an audiovisual appointment. So long as, you know, we initiate video, if we have to default to audio, then we can still pay and be reimbursed the same amount as we would have been in person. Similarly, if, for example, it is audiovisual, we can submit risk adjustment for most Medicare Advantage payers. But if it's audio only, we can't submit risk adjustment. So then you say, okay, how does that entire grid or that picture then implicate what you do operationally? So for us, what that meant was, you know, if we're going to schedule Medicare annual wellness visits, for example, and do a series of campaigns as we always do in those outreach efforts, we had to ensure that those were audiovisual only because that's the lowest common denominator that if we, even if we had to initiate an audio only, that's not going to suffice in terms of submitting risk adjustments. So I 100% agree with Dr. Tenden and a lot of the national advocacy that's been out there on this subject that, especially during the pandemic, where we do have as an organization upwards of 10% of our overall visits being done virtually as either a combination of audiovisual or audio only, that we be reimbursed at the same level we would be otherwise just for the financial stability of the practice, but then also have the ability to submit risk adjustment because that does have such a material impact on our premium and especially in capitated or full risk contracts like those we have in Medicare Advantage. Obviously, the weight of that revenue impact is borne into our overall revenue picture for those types of contracts. So, Tyler, we've talked a great deal about Medicare Advantage and how that plays into ARC's overall population health strategy. Let's switch gears for a minute and discuss ARC's participation in the Medicare ACO program. ARC is currently in the Enhanced Track Medicare ACO in partnership with Ascension Seton. It has 54,000 lives. 17,000 of those lives, as I understand, are attributed to ARC and this Medicare ACO collaboration has been a longstanding one. The MSSP is currently in its seventh year of existence and has saved over 18 million. The 2019 results at the time of this discussion are still under embargo. Hopefully that bodes well for you and your ACO. But I'm wondering what's next in the Medicare ACO. And I recently read a, an article that Dr. Chinvin provided a quote for. He was discussing the direct contracting path. And he said, this is going to be a shot in the arm. And we're going to see some real energy, innovation, and evolution of the value-based care movement. And a lot of our ACLC members that are experienced in risk are thinking the same. They're considering the direct contracting option as they progress in risk. Can you share with our listeners your perspective on direct contracting as an alternative to the next generation ACO model, which is set to expire after next year? Is direct contracting something that ARC is taking into consideration as it progresses into risk within the Medicare ACO program, or is it still too early to think about at this point for you guys? Okay, so the thought process around direct contracting, as you mentioned, this kind of represents the new horizon for what happens to the next gen program. And, you know, this is one we've all been watching alongside the primary care first program. And to me, this is exciting because it gets back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, which is that I think what ultimately motivates organizations to truly deliver on the value-based care value proposition is the amount of risk they take. And so to me, it's really exciting that when traditional Medicare 
keeps evolving us into programs that are higher levels of risk from where you have the option for uh, primary care capitation and or total cost of care capitation. That to me represents another really exciting shift in terms of the overall risk composition that that contract represents. And to me, fulfills the ultimate vision of the Affordable Care Act, which recognized that this is going to be a multi-decade transition to move Medicare fee-for-service into a more sustainable program where we can reduce not only the rate of increase, but the actual rate of overall expenditures over time. And we can do so while simultaneously delivering higher quality at a lower cost and better patient experience. The other thing that always comes to mind for me in terms of the long-term Medicare strategy for an organization like, say, ARC, a multi-specialty independent medical group or a clinically integrated network, for example, is to what degree does this population transition into Medicare Advantage over time? And if we're bullish on that fact, and do we think that those vehicles are more sustainable, are more financially lucrative, do better things and have better outcomes for our patients? I think that's an outstanding question, but one that you know goes into that strategic conversation. And the other is with any organization in the MSSP, given the nature of financial benchmarking, that if it's historical benchmark and that benchmark is rebased every time you sign a new contract and you've had some success, then, you know, obviously the long-term picture for that type of contract compared to a percent of premium or a capitated contract like direct contracting or percent of premium or full cap in Medicare Advantage becomes less and less lucrative and less and less sustainable because that benchmark continues to get set lower as you're more successful over time. So I think those things are in the back of our minds as a joint governing body trying to assess what's going on with this type of opportunity and what we may end up doing in the future. But I think right now we're continuing to have success in the MSSP and we're going to continue to wait and see, but watch with some excitement. Tyler, you've talked a lot about collaboration with partners and being really important and integral to the success that ARC has had. And obviously, collaboration with the area's employers is a key initiative for Austin Regional Clinic as well. ARC supports local employers in their workforce with oversight of on-site health clinics. You provide on-demand 24-7, 365 telemedicine services to employees through that EMD access platform that we talked about. You collaborate with Crossover Health to provide referrals to specialists, hearing services, preventive care, and ARC physicians and executives have partnered with brokers to educate employers on self-insurance. ARC founder Dr. Norman Chenven has really established ARC as a leading provider organization in Central Texas for addressing the healthcare needs of many large employers. And he's been focusing on the issue of this employer collaboration a great deal in his leadership role with the Council of Accountable Physician Practices. And Earlier this summer, CAP and the National Alliance of Healthcare Purchaser Coalitions released a report called Exploring Employer-Physician Collaborations to Deliver Quality Care. That report addressed a number of different barriers to effective collaboration, including lack of care coordination, access to care, some of the things that we've talked about, delays in care. So as we wrap up our conversation today, I want to ask if you can share with our listeners your perspective on how to establish an effective employer-physician collaboration. Thanks, Daniel. I think it's such an important question. And again, one that is top of mind for all of us as we're thinking about our value-based, our population portfolio, and what's next 
Looking at the employer community, it's interesting because you think about and assess how they're accessing healthcare today. You know, most self-insured employers out there are already going to be in a value-based contract. They're, for example, self-insured, but they use an ASO, administrative services only type relationship with any of the large BUCA type payers in Austin, Texas. Those BUCAs have value-based contracts with ARC, for example, or with one of our different partnership type vehicles that we participate in, in a variety of contexts. And so the interesting question is, what would we be trying to achieve strategically in any of those employer type relationships? I think that any pop health organization would say, well, just like ARC, we, we do not have an interest strategically in disintermediating our payer partners. We have had longstanding, meaningful partnerships with our payer partners where we come alongside them and we truly try and innovate contract incentives that drive behavior that benefit all of us. And I think that's the best place to collaborate from one of mutual benefit where we're truly not trying to carve out any individuals from the marketplace and where we add value. So that being a pillar of our strategic approach to to that entire line of business, I think what ARC is trying to achieve with the employer community is coming alongside the employers as they're making tough decisions about unsustainable premium growth, about patient privacy, about deployment of resources, about network breadth, and about do I offer my employees a narrower network at a lower cost, or is that still such a powerful fringe benefit that I may lose employees at the margin based on that change alone? Because they know in a competitive market like Austin, they can go, you know, employers can go find a, an alternative that will have better health benefits. So when we're thinking about the community, the approach really is then if they're already in a value-based arrangement, the best way to do this in a way that's mutually beneficial alongside our payer partners and have a conversation about how we can design vehicles that best accommodate all of those needs given their changing financial pressures and constraints, especially on the heels of COVID. You know, I think that the employer community though, especially in Austin, is on the eve of a real change in terms of price sensitivity. But I think similar to the transition from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage, I do believe and am bullish on these slightly skinnied networks that offer a higher degree of integration and care coordination as a alternative that should gain some traction here on the heels of the COVID economy. And I think this could be a real change and a driver of the uptake of those types of vehicles in the near future. Tyler Wilson, Vice President, Population Health and Clinical Quality, Austin Regional Clinic. Thank you so much, Tyler, for, for joining us today in the Race to Value. Guys, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for the opportunity.